Welcome everyone. As in my Filipino language, we say mabuhay. That's like equivalent to welcome. So I wanted my Filipinos to acknowledge that, hey, I'm giving them also greetings because I want my own people to really start um, getting the information from the right sources and just continue to be their, have their critical thinking because Filipinos are critical thinkers and warriors if you just don't uh, allow all the other distractions and we could understand fully of what shapes our understanding and our perspective. So welcome to Freedom International live stream. And today we are honored and really happy to have Vanessa Billy back to our show. And Vanessa, thank you very much for coming. No, thank you so much for having me Vanessa, back on. It's great to meet you all. Yeah, as you said, there's so much to talk about and we'll always have you um, all the time in, in our mind, but we needed to share you because you have so many outlets that needs to, needs to be, you know, to have you <laughs> and be, hear from you. So if for, for those who continue to seek truth. You know, when you're looking for an independent journalist, you need also to consider where they're coming from. Like you can consider also what awards they have. And for, for Vanessa, she was already a finalist for the prestigious Martha Gellon Prize for Journalism, which was won by the much acclaimed Robert Parry that year in 2017. And she was also named as one of the 238 most respected journalists in UK in 2018 by the British National Council for Training of Journalists. In, so, and that word uncompromised integrity, that's Vanessa. And so all of us, we all also, we have our own intuitive knowing if the source that we are reading, the, the, what we're listening to, kind of gives us that wisdom, mm, is this the right person? Is this the right article? Well, that led me to Vanessa Billy. So I want you to be encouraged and to get in touch with him, with her, if you want to know more about her. She has a patreon.com account. She has also her Substack, and she's um, together with the last vagabond and many independent media and one of my favorite also is the uk column so when yeah. she posts something i'm sure that i really look into it she's in my top 12 maybe top six but definitely the lucky 12 of what sources so thank you very much and then and as they always say that there's like a tsunami of information coming left and right from all those promoting the globalism and all those are talking about multipolarity. And as, as the mainstream media keep pushing or who, defining who our enemies are, and on the other side, we really have to know who are really our allies or our friends, because maybe the, the countries like Russia and 
China, Iran that we think, and maybe India in the future, our enemies are really going to be our allies that will help us. And from what I'm hearing, they've been helping us already so that we don't really go down the drain. And if we have to go down the drain, then we have a way to bring us back together. So in this article that Vanessa wrote is peace in the Middle East is sending Western globalists and Israel into a tailspin. And then the second one that he did is um, is about Iraq and Syria to reopen crucial oil pipeline. So the, it seems like there's like peace conversations. And I bet most of you have heard about Xi Jinping and also uh, conversation with uh, you know, uh, in Ukraine, right? So with Zelensky. So Vanessa, what? Who are these Western globalists, and is the role, or yeah, the role, or how are they connected with Israel, and who's really running the show of this imperialism that we have been experiencing for centuries? Well, I think the first thing I would say is that we all need to stop talking about right and left. We all need to stop talking about Democrat and Republican, conservative and labor, because actually they're all the same and they're all being governed from behind the scenes by the oligarchy. And of course, the oligarchy, uh, particularly in the West, it, it has a very imperialist-driven, neo-colonialist-driven agenda. And countries like Syria, like Latin America, uh, Iraq, Libya, Yemen, um, all these countries, and of course, Palestine for 75 years, um, have been in the crosshairs of uh, these entities that have the real control um, over the, the, the roadmap of the governments under their control uh, in the West. And, um, you know, there is, there is this, let's say, groundswell of narrative that, that the oligarchy class is the same across the board. So in other words, in China, in Russia, um, in India, and so on, Basically, they're all united in this common aim for effectively subjugating the working classes, eradicating the middle class, and taking control of all uh, global resources. My argument is that you can't come to this conclusion without at least attempting to understand the different cultures that you're talking about here. And culture comes into it, culture, heritage, history, civilization, if you look at Syria, for example, Damascus was inhabited, it's, I think it's the longest, or it claims to be the longest inhabited city for 10,000 years. The history of Syria stretches thousands of years beyond the United States, for example. The same with Russia, the same with China, the same with India. You're talking about civilizations, culture, histories, that are part of the DNA of the people in those countries. So even if you have some connections between elements of the oligarchy, the people themselves are completely divorced from, for example, if, if, for example, if you look at countries like Russia, Iran, China, they are conservative in their nature. 
they veer away from kind of what I call the debauchery and the dementia right now of the West. Because culturally, that's not in their that's not in their DNA. That's not in their genetic makeup. And this is what people don't think about when they um, analyze what's going on in the world right now. They tend to look at it actually um, through a very Western prism. So actually, effectively, in my opinion, and in the opinion of colleagues of mine who are actually living in other countries or who have experienced many other cultures, this is actually a kind of imperialist mindset in itself. Because what it's doing is projecting Western values onto the countries that are completely alien to those values and don't understand them. Here in Syria, nobody understands the majority of the policies that are going on in the West right now. We didn't understand COVID. We didn't understand uh, vaccine, vaccine uptake here, whatever your view of, of COVID is 6%, less than 6%, right? Um, so there are, there are vast differences between cultures that people are not empathizing with and not taking into account when they're coming to worldview conclusions. Sorry, that went a bit off in a tangent, but. <laughs> Thank you for that introduction uh, to our conversation, Vanessa. Um, and, you know, I still remember a friend of mine who had long passed away already. and. The, I remember him telling me, I don't think I can ever see peace in the world, Grace. Every time we turn around or we listen to news, and this was way before the COVID, and they're always talking about, you know, wars in the Arab world and, you know, what happened already in Vietnam and other countries. So when you wrote this article of, about Iraq and Syria to reopen crucial oil pipeline, and you had this beautiful map, you know, that it's that Kirkuk to Syrian Baniyaz oil pipeline. I was wondering, so what are the beneficial or the positive things that would that you know we could appreciate if this really happens? And then however you wanna reply to my second question is uh, with this is what could be the possible obstacles, especially coming from the Western globalist? Well, I mean, what you have going on now, and actually Syria is very much at the center of the battle for on, on the one side for multipolarity and on the other side to defend uh, US, UK in particular, but EU is kind of on their coattails, um, supremacy, particularly in Western, in West Asia. And Syria is seen very much by both sides actually as the gateway um, to economic trade, energy resource trade, um, food and agriculture trade, etc., because it's effectively the um, the hub between east and west, right? And and this has always been. If you go back to 2004 and you go back to President Bashar al-Assad's Five Cs project, you will know to what extent that was also his vision that Syria would be the uniting force for all of the trade centers in the world. So he had a vision back in 2004, and a vision of multipolarity has existed for centuries, by the way. 
who has destroyed that vision has been um, the imperialist cabal, right? I mean, the Omaya dynasty had a vision of multipolar trade before it kind of became a slogan. So, you know, it's not anything new. It's not anything new to these countries. This is what they have always sought after. Um, and so, uh, sorry, I've lost my track a little bit. Um, what was I talking about? <laughs> sorry. Just like, you know, what, what the obstacles may, might be happening because it, lo it looks very promising. You know, and who would yeah, not sorry. Like and, and so the, yeah, sorry. Um, so the Kirkuk uh, to Banyas, Banyas is on the sort of Mediter Mediterranean uh, coastal region of Syria. Um, this pipeline was actually built in 1952 by an American corporation, Vestel Corporation, which people will, of course, know during um, the 2003 U.S pre-planned and illegal invasion of Iraq. Bechtel was one of the 25 companies that were most savage in their exploitation um, of the fallout of uh, the US devastation of Iraq from 2003 onwards. So Bechtel were actually responsible for building the pipeline back in 1952. It then went through various transitions during various conflicts where it was shut down and reopened and shut down and reopened. And of course, in 2003, as part of the bombing campaign by the US and Iraq, they bombed the pipeline. One could argue that was in preparation uh, for what was coming in Syria because of course, all of these uh, destabilization projects were planned well before when they started under the pretext of the Arab Springs. Um, and then in 2010, it was reopened temporarily for a very short time uh, by Iraq and Syria. Um, and then, of course, it was shut down again because uh, ISIS, the terrorist group that was incubated by the United States, both in Iraq and in Syria, occupied areas of the route that the pipeline followed. And it then became incredibly difficult to continue um, using the pipeline. So for the next 12 years, uh, the, the, the pipeline was basically mothballed. In 2010, again, um, Russia started to get very interested in um, Iraq affairs. It started to invest into the oil industry in Iraq. And then going forward, um, basically, Russia in 2019 was starting to talk about reopening this pipeline to the benefit of Iraq and Syria. For Iraq, of course, what it meant was bypassing the Kurdish occupied areas of Iraq. And when I'm talking about Kurdish occupied areas of Iraq, that also means under the control of the United States, because those areas um, occupied by the Kurds after 2003, of course, contained um, Iraqi oil uh, fields and uh, resources. And people will not maybe know this, the Kurds were actually uh, spared US sanctions in Iraq. Why? Because of course, they were occupying the resources that were of benefit um, to the United States. And that is pretty much exactly what has happened in Syria 
the US is occupying the Northeast, which contains some of the uh, most vital resources of Syria, including oil, including um, agricultural produce, water, um, and all of that, of course, is now under control of the Kurds and the ISIS terrorists. And the ISIS terrorists are another proxy of the United States. And so um, now what we have are ongoing discussions between um, Syria and Iraq to reopen the pipeline. Why? Because, of course, as I've explained, for Iraq, it enables them to, to bypass the, the Kurdish uh, factions. And it also gives them a much uh, shorter route to the refineries in Banyas. And then from Banyas, of course, you're on the Mediterranean. Um, you've got potential for transport into uh, Europe. For Syria, of course, what it will hopefully do is to alleviate some of their energy deprivation problems, the majority of which come from the U.S. occupation of their resources. The U.S. is stealing 80% of Syrian oil. So only 20% of the oil that is being produced in the Northeast is actually coming into Syria. And that meager supply is regularly bombed uh, by Israel, as it was about a week ago, uh, when they bombed um, a, a civilian gas station in Homs and a number of tankers uh, and storage facilities for uh, the fuel itself. Um, so basically, um, you know, what this has potential to do is to also give um, an opportunity for. Uh, an increased or an expanded Russian-Iranian alliance with Russia and Iran collaborating on, on the restoration of the pipeline. For Iran, of course, what it's looking at is actually connecting its own pipelines to Kirkuk, and so creating um, a single pipeline from Iran through Iraq and into uh, Syria. And for Russia, it gives it, of course, an opportunity to invest into the oil industry in both Iraq and Syria for the future. Um, what are the obstacles? Well, the obstacles are clear. Um, the US is really not going to be happy about this. Israel is definitely not going to be happy about anything that restores uh, Syria's independence. Um, and so the chances are, I would guess, the first steps that the U.S. would take to try and prevent it is to activate the ISIS sleeper cells that are present uh, in Iraq and Syria to sabotage the plans for the pipeline. But of course, the difference is now is that you have with the, um, the recent rapprochement between Saudi Arabia, UAE, Egypt, Jordan, um, etc., all of the kind of Arab League countries with Syria, you have now a far greater unity. You have, in fact, the emergence of a kind of neo-pan-Arabism. And we have to remember that the West has been uh, destabilizing these countries to prevent pan-Arabism, the, the unity of Arab countries, for decades. But the, the, the end result is, in my view, a new form of pan-Arabism. Um, and that, of course, is backed by Iran and Russia, more and more so nowadays by China, who also sees opportunities for investment in Syria. Um, and of course, the other obstacle are the sanctions. But again, with the changing world that we live in um, and with the pivot away from the dollar to other currency like the ruble, like the yuan, 
um, as Marco Rubio said rather ruefully recently, well, this scuppers our sanction um, policies because if people are not paying in dollars, we lose our power, we lose our ability to um, oppress countries through sanctions, through economic measures. So, you know, there, there, there is, we're a long way from a perfect world, but at least what we're seeing are the, um, the beginnings of new development, new cooperation, new collaboration, which is pivoting away from Western hegemony and is giving countries like Syria some kind of um, optimism and breathing space. And that is something that they haven't had for 12 years. Thank you, was... Vanessa. And thank you for all the work you've done. We hope to live long so we could see the, you know, outcomes of this kind of, you know, these uh, treaties and upcoming projects. I'll pass it on to Roy. Thank you. Thanks, Grace. Uh, nice meeting you again, Vanessa. Yeah, and you. Um, just quick little tangent because of uh, <laughs> you know your journalistic credentials with Tucker Carlson and Fox News. Is that a pony show, or do you think something is really going on there? Um, no, I do actually genuinely think um, I, I've spoken to a couple of people that are fairly close to Tucker Carlson. Um, I mean, you know, he's still a personality journalist, so I would still approach all of these kind of, um, let's say, groundbreaking divorces from mainstream media. I, I would still always treat everything with a bit of skepticism, but we have to also learn to take the wins when we've got them. <laughs> you know, I, th I, I don't subscribe to the kind of, the endless doom and gloom and everyone <laughs> has nefarious um, uh, reasons for doing what they're doing. Let's wait and see. Let's wait and see what he does. I, I have slight reservations about his China, um, his anti-China stances. Um, you know, in a sense, he is pushing for um, escalation with China just simply by the narratives that he upholds. But... Um, he has been instrumental in changing the minds of many people, particularly about Ukraine, for example. And even um, he was very supportive of uh, Syria during the OPCW inspector um, incident after Duma in 2018, when the OPCW basically kind of blanked the OPCW inspectors that were on the ground and had actually estimated that it wasn't a chemical attack, no chemicals were used, and therefore um, the US, France, and UK had bombed Damascus without cause. They had committed a war crime. Uh, so, you know, I, I think, as I said, you, you have to, I, no, I don't think there is um, any major uh, conspiracy behind it. But, you know, he is still Tucker Carlson, so I would still... <laughs> okay. Let's with wait Exactly. Because we see China with everything, and, like, mm -hmm. we hear of the social credit system, but then I heard recently that's all propaganda, and I'd yeah. love to hear your take on that. Well, I mean, the best person, actually, to talk to about this is a journalist colleague of mine, Brian Valetic, who has a YouTube channel called The New Atlas, and Grace, I don't know if you had him on, but he's well worth getting on. He's amazing. 
Um, he lives in Thailand and he's done a really good little section on the social credit um, propaganda. And he actually said it's complete bunkum. Even if you're reading um, the reports, for example, in Business Insider or these kind of uh, media, um, they basically contradict themselves within the article. They actually do admit that it doesn't exist. And as he pointed out, it's pretty much, and I've been saying this for years, it's exactly what we have in the UK. I don't know about US or Canada or, or, or Germany, but in the UK, we have a social credit score. You know, if, if, you've, if you've been in prison, um, if you've reneged on debt, if you've committed a crime, that comes up when you apply for a mortgage or you apply for a loan, et cetera, right? And, and we've had that as long as I can remember, back in the 80s, back in the kind of Thatcher years, we've had that system. Um, and as he pointed out, it's exactly the same system in China. If, for example, someone goes on the train and commits an infringement of the rules of uh, rail travel in China, then yes, they get a black mark and they might ne not necessarily be able to travel on the trains for one month, two months, et cetera. That's exactly what we do in the UK with our driving licenses. You get points and then you get banned, right? So I, you know, there's a lot of hyperbole about China. It's not a culture that I know. I haven't been to China, but I tend to follow people that are there like Daniel Dumbrell, um, who's on Twitter. And I think he's also got a YouTube channel and Brian, who looks into these things, you know, forensically. And he basically came up and said, you know, there's no terrifying social credit system. It's exactly the same as we have. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> and I think we're all kind of guilty if we hear something and then we regurgitate yeah. it because we assume it to be true. And that's why I asked you. And that's fantastic to hear that. <laughs> so yeah. I, I heard you on another show and there were, you were talking about Turkish, Russian, Syrian and Iranian foreign ministers to meet in Moscow oh. in early May. You might talk about that. Did it happen and what, what it was about? Yeah, I, I mean, the thing is that, you know, for Syria, there have been huge changes as we were talking about going on. Um, the cooperation now with Saudi Arabia, which also came after China brokered the deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Um, the potential for peace in Yemen and end of the Saudi project there, which actually, in my view, Saudi had been looking for a way out of that anyway, because it was a quagmire for them. It was only because um, the US and the UK in particular, because you've got to remember southern Yemen, Aden, was formerly a, a British colony. So the, the UK was heavily involved in this. The UK is heavily involved in Syria, and they're far more vindictive towards uh, Syria than the US, in my opinion. Um, and so you also then had the meetings with um, UAE. And I do have to just mention, because I love this fact, that when the president arrived in the UAE with his wife, they were escorted in by UAE fighter jets. Now, those fighter jets were very likely supplied by the United States. So there is a wonderful irony about this. Plus the fact that the airport they landed at has, I think, about 10 American military bases and intelligence centers around it. So this was a wonderful symbolic gesture. And, you know, my fear was, is this some kind of Trojan horse 
um, on behalf of um, the US using the UAE, weaponizing the UAE and Saudi Arabia to infiltrate Syria, having failed militarily um, and economically sanctions have not succeeded in turning the people against the government. Um, and so all of this has been going on. Uh, Syria readmitted to the Arab League, meetings in Amman in Jordan, um, to normalize relations with Syria, et cetera, et cetera. What is the remaining thorn in the side of Iran, Russia, and Syria is Turkey. Um, whether it's Erdogan or whether it's the CHP, the Republican Party, um, doesn't really make any difference. Actually, of the two, Erdogan is probably the more favorable, although, I mean, what he's done to Syria over the last 12 years is horrendous, but he's still probably the more favorable because he's more conservative, of course, because he heads up the Muslim Brotherhood pretty much um, in Syria and uh, in Turkey. Um, he's a conservative, so he basically you know, aligns with Russian, Iranian, Syrian culture to some degree, whereas the Republican Party is very much heading towards the kind of WEF agenda, um, LGBT movements and so on and so forth. Um, so to some degree, Erdogan is the preferred candidate because better the devil you know than the one you don't. And there is chances the Republican Party would pivot even more to the West than Erdogan. Erdogan has consistently tried to kind of play both ends against the middle. Um, of course, Turkey is a NATO member state, so that also plays a large part in their policies. Um, and so you basically have an upcoming meeting, uh, which is the second one of the foreign ministers, which is uh, scheduled for the 17th of May uh, in Moscow. But on the 14th of May, you have elections. So this is very interesting timing going on here um, because I'm not quite sure how they know who will be the foreign minister at that point in time. Um, now, the way Turkish elections work, if I remember correctly, um, <clears throat> basically, if a presidential candidate gets more than 50% of the vote, they are declared uh, president on the day of the first round of voting. If, however, it's a kind of a, a hung vote and there are two candidates with, with close or equal uh, number of votes, it goes forward to the second round of voting, which will be on the 28th of May. So basically, if Erdogan wins outright, then it's his foreign minister that will go to Moscow on the 17th of May. If he doesn't win outright, I'm not quite sure what will happen with that 17th May meeting. I'm assuming it will be delayed. Um, but what is interesting is, is the courting of Ankara that's going on by both Iran and Russia and the US. I mean, the US basically just released um, quite a large lump sum of equipment for um, Turkish Air Force, um, which had been put on hold, but I think they suddenly thought, mm, okay, we better start buttering up Ankara pre-election because we don't want them to keep pivoting towards Iran and Russia. And of course, Russia depends on Turkey as its kind of middleman for selling oil um, and uh, wheat, et cetera, into Europe to avoid the sanctions. But 
Russia now is also doing a deal with Saudi Arabia. So it's clearly saying to Turkey, all right, but I'm not going to be only dependent on Turkey, right? So as I said, there's a huge amount of maneuvering um, going on at the moment. And Turkey is absolutely pivotal to peace in Syria. President Assad has made it very clear, um, and he won't budge from this red line, that Turkey effectively has to remove all of its military, and that includes its proxy military, so its Muslim Brotherhood extremist groups from Syrian territory. Turkey at the moment is trying to build another apartheid wall um, in the north of Syria. It's already built one across basically annexing large amounts of Syrian territory kind of north-northwest. Now it's building one more north-northeast. Um, there have been local protests in Ras al-Ain to, to prevent the building and it's been called off temporarily. But it's quite clear both from the rhetoric of the Turkish administration um, from Erdogan, from his foreign minister, um, that they don't intend to make concessions or military concessions. They are still talking about the Kurdish terrorist threat, um, which is kind of ironic because Erdogan in his election campaign is relying on a group whose name I've just forgotten, but they're known as the Turkish Hezbollah, the party of God. They have nothing to do with Hezbollah. They're actually a Sunni extremist Kurdish group, factions of which are embedded in Idlib in the northwest fighting alongside Al-Qaeda. So it's a very complex um, situation. Russia in particular would rather President Assad just meets with Erdogan and it all finishes and Russia doesn't have to worry about it anymore. But this is a clear example of where Russia doesn't infringe on Damascus sovereignty because Assad has the last word on this and his red line as I said is the withdrawal of Turkish troops from Syria before any kind of normalization for on a political level can happen. Okay and uh, finally just uh, before I pass <laughs> it to John um, with the one world religion which I believe has been built in the Middle East is how's that going to affect everything with what's going on? Uh, are you talking about the Abrahamic? I don't know what it's called, but it's basically the, they're they're trying one world religion with all the religions together. They're building one temple. Who's building one temple? I heard it's in Dubai. That oh uh, oh. <laughs> um, actually, I'm not too clued up on this. I know through the Abraham Accords and all this. Yes, they are trying to kind of centralize. <laughs> religious power but it's not going to happen yeah. um in the resistance access for sure okay listen vanessa thank you very much i hope we get you back sooner than six thank months <laughs> and i passionate john thank you hi vanessa nice to meet hi, you hi nice to meet you um i've got a ton of questions for you um a <laughs> ton of questions i'm very familiar with turkey and their ability to play both sides of yeah. the coin uh, they're a member of NATO, and NATO's at quote-unquote war with Russia, and yet they're doing deals with Russia. So I'm very familiar mm -hmm. with, with I'm, I'm from Greek descent. So right. <laughs> they want half the Aegean, and our prime minister is like, yeah, sure, we can give it yeah, to them. Yeah, I know. Um, I actually found it surprising that you actually called Ergodan a conservative, which is... <laughs> 
<laughs> well, With conservative from a from a um, uh, that he refuses the whole and and I don't have anything against transgender, but I do have a lot against the movements themselves and the capture of those movements to basically divide and to create schisms or in societies in the West. And so that's all I'm looking at from from that perspective, right? In, in many of his other policies, no, he's an extremist. I live in Syria. <laughs> Trust me, I know what his policies are. Well, he's taken, like you said, like he's taken parts of Syria, parts of Armenia. He wants to take parts of Greece. He want mm. this guy. Let's if if NATO, Europe, and Russia let him loose, he'll run havoc. He'll run mm. havoc on on the world. Um, but I don't want to focus on that. Man, I'm just going to call him man. Um, I do have a quick question um, about like peace in the Middle East. Do you think that King Charles, is, uh, what are your thoughts on King Charles? And do you think that he's going to be able to uh, maintain oh, that this peace? Or is he going to um, provoke it to be torn apart? King Charles? Yeah. Uh, look, first of all, <laughs> oh my God, like where do I start? The royal family is just the most satanic, disgusting entity on this planet. I mean, you know, we were talking about those in charge behind the scenes. And, you know, in theory, we have this kind of constitutional monarchy. It, it's rubbish. Um, you know, Prince Charles heads up the WEF. He heads up the eugenicist programs, the, the, the so-called green deals and all the rest of it, that is effectively about harnessing global resources for the benefit of the top 1% and the, the deliberate starvation and deprivation on all levels of the working class. They've already destroyed the middle class. They're a complete parasite class. The, the last thing they want to see is peace in, in the Middle East at all. As I said right in the beginning, you know, the UK has the longest history of effectively carving countries up. And that is exactly what the US used in the Balkans when it carved up former Yugoslavia. It's what it's tried to do in Yemen. It's tried to do it in, in Libya and Iraq, everywhere it goes. That's a British blueprint. That's what we do. We carve countries up into sectarian statelets so that they are constantly at each other's throat. My father was actually part of the contingent of Arabists who post Second World War was trying to prevent the Truman Doctrine of, of um, flooding Palestine with Jewish settlers. And there was a very, very small window of opportunity. And my father was part of that. He was advising Ernest Bevan, who was anti-Zionist, to prevent this. And in a confidential paper, he actually wrote about the decades of bloodshed that this would unleash on the region. And then, of course, before they could actually put into effect any of the policies that, that they wanted to to try and prevent this, um, the Stern gang and Ergen started attacking them. Um, 
um, with with uh, poisoned letters and so on and so forth. And my father was attacked, and and the entire, you know, uh, let's say anti-imperialist um, front line collapsed. And from then on in, we've had nothing, as I as he predicted, but bloodshed in the region. Um, and the UK has been large. I, I don't see the US as anything more than the muscle. The UK is the intelligence. Is Alex Craner, another very good um, analyst, said to me one time, he remembers, I don't know if you all saw Mad Max 3, but if you saw the huge Cyclops giant with the horrible little dwarf on his shoulder and the dwarf is telling him everything he should do, that's how he sees the role of or, or the relationship between America and the UK. And I agree with it. In Syria, all of the intelligence operations were British-led, right? Everything from, from the NGO infiltration to the media support for the armed groups to the um, pre-war scouting for opposition and so on. All of this was managed by the UK, not by the US. Right. The UK is, is, is the absolute master at this kind of destabilization project, both domestically and abroad, by the way, because they're doing a very good job of, you know, undermining their own society in the UK right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> in, in, in recent history, we've seen some uh, um, historic stuff happen in the Middle East between the Sunnis and the Shiites, they declared peace and between each other. Do you think this is a long-term thing, a short-term thing? Do you think this is a smokescreen that's created by BRICS? Uh, what are your feelings on the peace between the, the Shiites and the Sunnis? Um, are you talking about Saudi Arabia and Iran? Yes. No, yes. Right. Um, First of all, I wouldn't class Saudi Arabia as Sunni. Um, the majority of Saudi Arabia has been historically Wahhabi, which is a very, very extremist form of Sunni Islam. And of course, we've seen the results of that um, in Syria with their funding of some of the most extremist factions that were on the ground in Syria, including those uh, or, or the um, alliance of terrorist groups led by Sheikh Abdullah Mohaizani. Mohaizani was directly funded by Saudi Arabia. He was actually educated in Saudi Arabia as a sheikh. Um, and he was responsible for the training of child suicide bombers for some of the worst atrocities committed against Syrian people and Syrian military um, during the time that Saudi Arabia was basically financially involved in, in the whole project. They pretty much withdrew from it in around 2015. Um, and, you know, I think to a huge degree, this Shia-Sunni divide has been very much manufactured in the West. In Iraq, for example, um, if you talk to people about life in Iraq before um, the West got involved, and actually created sectarianism, created a sectarian problem there. It wasn't sectarian. If you speak to any Syrian, they will tell you they are first and foremost Syrian. Second is their faith. Most people living next door to each other had no idea if they were Christian, Shia, Sunni, 
the same in Yemen between the Zaydis and the Shafis. They had no idea if they were Shafi or Zaydi. They didn't care. They shared mosques. <laughs> so, you know, this Sunni-Shia divide is, is entirely um, an instrument of the West. And that's one of the reasons that they created, by the way, the Muslim Brotherhood. And again, Britain was involved in their creation back in the late 20s in Egypt. And they are the ones that, you know, who, who bring in this sectarian uh, language and ideology, right? So these extremist factions are who are perpetrating the sectarian ideology. And of course, they are either created or funded by the West. So this is a Western um, creation. It's, it didn't exist between Sunni and Shia. Interesting. Uh, just one more question before I pass you on to Jane. Um, what are your thoughts on what's happening in Israel with the Christians being persecuted so harshly? Um, Christians have pretty much always been persecuted in Israel. Um, and you have to remember, again, coming back to Syria, that Israel was, was funding um, the armed groups in Syria. It was treating them in hospitals when they were injured. And it was fairly recently admitted, I think, in the last three years that they were providing weapons to those armed groups. So those extremist Islamist armed groups one of the main sectors of Syrian society that they targeted were the Christian um, communities. In Aleppo, 75% of Christians fled because it was the Christian areas that predominantly came under attack from, from the terrorist groups that Israel was backing, um, occupying the outskirts of Aleppo, pretty much surrounding Aleppo, the same in Damascus, the same in Homs, and the same in Hamas, for example. It was those armed groups that were targeting the Christian Orthodox towns of Skelbiya and Mahade in northern Hamar on the borders with Idlib. So Israel has a history of persecuting any non-Judaic uh, faith. Yeah, for like 2,000 years, but yeah. thank you. <laughs> thank you, Vanessa. I'll pass you on no, to Jane. You're welcome. Hi, Hi. Vanessa. Bye. You know, uh, I was talking to my mom early on the morning of the coronation <laughs> and she's very awake and she still asked me if I got up at 3 a.m. to watch it. And I was like, what? <laughs> no, like, you know who King Charles is, right? And that he's head of the World Economic Forum and all these things and like it's just pomp and pageantry to convince the world that they're still, uh, mm. you know, to program the world that they are a certain way. But anyway, I was, I find it disheartening at times because even my mom, who's completely awake, doesn't see the connections. Can we repeat, so, please? Can we can't hear you. We can't hear you. Oh, really? You can you can't hear me? Could you hear me, Vanessa? Yeah, You're I can. Afraid. Okay. Okay. That's good. <laughs> so I wanted you to clarify who are the imperialists, the, the, this cabal. And it seems like most countries in the West that think they're free are actually puppets, even the US. And finally, is there any hope of people waking up to this? No. <laughs> 
having just watched sure. um, the, the, the crowds go out for the, it's hard not to swear, but I'll try not to for the coronation. Right. <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of, um, yeah, actually, I was just having a conversation with Corey Morningstar, who's, again, one of my favorite colleagues. Um, and we were both just saying, my God, you know, it's, it's like I call it the NGO Hydra, because if you cut off one head, another one grows back. In fact, not one, 10 heads grow back. You know, it's like you. I feel like Don Quixote tilting at windmills sometimes because the amount of resources that that this entire complex has behind it, you know, is extraordinary. And and when one thing is exposed or discredited, um, then uh, another way it it's just removed. You know, I mean, governments do this all the time. The British government is famous for it. It just has outreach agents that carry out its its tasks in, in target countries. And then when it all falls apart and it's exposed as the corrupt, criminal, ag aggressive scheme that it really is, that NGO gets shelved and the government has plausible deniability. Oh, we didn't know what they were doing, right? And then funnily enough, that NGO reemerges somewhere else with a different name, the same people. And this happens time and time and time again. And it's endless. I'm seeing it now because all of the groups that were, were discredited in Syria for the work they did for the intelligence agencies in the US and the UK to destabilize Syria, they all kind of disappeared. Now they're all regrouping under another brand new NGO and they're all there. And they're all talking the same policy, the same strategy, the same vision, et cetera, et cetera, with the same funding as if nothing happened. And the problem is that people, um, this is where people get fooled because the machine is so clever at reprogramming. <laughs> you know, it like gives you that victory of, oh, we exposed them, we, we smeared them, we discredited them, we showed them to be, you know, the, the corrupt tools that they really are. And everyone feels like, yay. And then they reappear as something else and everyone goes, oh, isn't it marvelous, you know? It's literally, it's, it's, and that's what they are so good at doing. Um, you know, from infiltration and independent media, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The, the, the list is endless. Um, how, how do you groom these people to be so connected? <laughs> no, no, that how, how do they groom this network to be so connected and so ahead of the curve, right? It's just incredible. Yeah, um, again, I would say that this is where Britain plays a huge role because, you know, Britain has, well, centuries um, of behavioral manipulation, influence, and so on, um, propaganda management. Um, and, you know, money, money talks, all of these organizations pay huge amounts of money to their staff. And once you're in the machine, it's very difficult to get out because, or you're compromised, you know, think Epstein. <laughs> so you can be blackmailed if you try to leave, 
or you're incentivized to a point where it's just too expensive for you to leave and, and you know you've already sold your soul i've seen this on i mean i i don't know if you know robert ford who was the u.s ambassador to to syria and basically was instrumental in the fostering of death squads in Syria and previously um, with Del Ponte in, in Nicaragua, et cetera, right? Um, for sure, he had a kind of meltdown. I mean, he, he, he was messaging me for about a year trying to get sympathy for what he'd done in Iraq and what he was doing in Syria, trying to, you know, so I'm sure some of these people are just sucked into the vortex and then it's impossible to leave it right as i said for the reasons that i mentioned um who are the imperialists well of course <clears throat> britain in particular and the eu i mean france also um has a very long history of ne of colonialism now we tend to call it neocolonialism, but really it's just an extension of the colonialism that they've always exercised. Um, <coughs> and um, the US, for, since its uh, incubation as a country, has effectively done nothing else also except try to colonize, plunder, pillage. And, and this is the difference between what the US does and what Russia and China are doing. Russia and China are investing in infrastructure in partner countries. When you listen to how Africa described their, their, their working relationship with Russia and China to how their relationship is with the United States, it's, it's completely different. Both China and Russia will invest because they understand that by investing in these countries, they get the best return, right? and the country benefits from their investment. The US just believes in destroying a country, um, either economically, militarily, uh, politically, doesn't really matter, and then just going in and taking what they want, regardless uh, of the people, just as they're doing in Syria, stealing 80% of the oil. The majority of Syrians have no electricity, they have no fuel, they have no heating, they have no electricity, blah, 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 right? Hospitals aren't working because generators aren't working, so on. I mean, the list is, is endless. Um, as regards waking people up to it, it's really difficult. And I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I, I do go through like tremendous despondency because it, it's cyclical. It's kind of, you know... I fought, or we all fought for years to prove that Syria was a regime change war. And it wasn't until 2016 when Aleppo was finally liberated, or the eastern sectors of Aleppo were finally liberated, that people started to kind of have a bit of an epiphany, right? And wake up. Certainly, many, for example, with Syria, the Palestine movement in particular was weaponized against Syria. And so many in the Palestine movement were actually calling for regime change in Syria because they'd been sold the story that Syria was against Palestine, despite the fact that it was Syria's um, allegiance to the resistance in Palestine and Hezbollah and Iran that, that actually was one of the reasons that started the war against Syria. Right? And, and there are many Palestinians still living inside uh, Syria that have full... Um, uh, residency rights here. 
many are, for example, many of the Syrian army brigades are Palestinian, like Liwa al-Quds. But all of this was kind of erased from the narrative that, that people were receiving in the West. And so therefore the Palestine movement, which is huge, was turned against um, Syria until really even after 2016. But then having gone through that battle, then when uh, Russia started the special military operation in Ukraine, it all started up again, right? Oh, electricity just went. Um, and then China again, you know? So it's, it's just like, sometimes I just feel like we're on a hamster wheel and every new intervention, Africa as well, Africa will be the new front um, of NATO against uh, Russia and China. But it will all start again. People will be just as swamped by and gaslighted by the propaganda as they were in Syria and Iraq and Libya and Afghanistan. <laughs> it's a cycle. And I, I sometimes, um, I don't know how to break it. <laughs> well, thank you for your honesty. <laughs> 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 not not giving me a lot of hope in the end we just have to live you know our own through our yeah. own heart and see and hopefully that yeah travels yeah. to others but yeah the despondency does but then you know you happened. do suddenly get a message out of the blue from someone who completely changed their point of view because they heard you talking and so on and so that does give you some, you know, I, I think all any of us can do is try to change our own perspective, try to change, you know, develop our own perspective and develop yeah. our own analysis and put it out there. Because I don't believe in trying to sell what I believe to anyone, but I believe what I believe with a clear conscience, right? Yeah. I think that's what I'm trying to say. That doesn't mean to say that in one year's time, I'm not going to change some of my perspectives because I'm adding layers of knowledge um, to what little I already know, okay? And I, and I think that's it. We've all just got to be honest with each other. And actually, um, what is really important is that we all give each other the space to discuss ideas and arguments and not allow ourselves to be converted into gladiatorial adversaries over every single um, event or issue globally, because that is what's happening. Discourse is being degraded. And that is also um, part of the plan, of course, is that we will stop communicating with each other. And that same kind of plan for sectarian divide is what's being used against us through creating all of these schisms, all of these movements that we all start arguing about because we disagree with this movement, whatever. And, and then, you know, COVID was a perfect example of this. The non-vaxxers against the, the pro-vaxxers and the pandemic deniers again, you know, but nobody was allowed to come to the table and actually have a reasonable discussion because of censorship, because of um, the oppression of free speech, etc. Right? And we're heading into a fascist future in the West because everything is being shut down. Free speech is being shut down. We're being put on kill lists. We're being personally sanctioned for expressing an opinion. Sorry, that was a 
Yeah. <laughs> Sad, but true. <laughs> and do you feel the imperialists are behind that? I feel um, the oligarchy is behind that. I think yeah. imperialist is sometimes a bit misleading because yeah. I tend to look at it as a kind of billionaire complex and that includes pharmaceutical, it includes the military industrial complex, it includes all those that both generate and, and um, leech from the economy. Yeah. Thank you, Vanessa. Oh, you're welcome. I appreciate you. <laughs> Gratitude. <laughs> I'll pass you to Hartman. Bye. You were last last time, I think. <laughs> Hello, Vanessa. It's a real pleasure Hi. to have you again on this show. And Thank um, you. yeah, there are so many things, and um, I got so many questions. And but let's start with <laughs> this way. Uh, first of all, concerning the um, concerning the never ending ever ending story of war. Um, I have yeah. I read in a, uh, I gotten very interesting information that mm. the wars are essential for financing of the deep states yeah so it's a war is a perfect place for money laundering yeah and so it is quite easy and uh the world economic forum predicted that the ukraine war will lead 10 years from now so this is yeah. let's say their wish yeah mm. So mm. they have enough. So in that case, they can establish a lot of money behind the scenes. Yeah. Um, my question, first of all, let's come back to the Middle East. Mm. Uh, Saudi Arabia, I think it's more, let's say, an economical situation that, mm. that everything is changing and that we it looks like that we have a real um, Arabic spring, a real Arabic spring at the moment, because... Um, now it starts that the countries who have the commodities mm. come together and start fighting a battle against the uh, countries who have the money. Mm -hmm. For example, um, the the West controlled money system and uh, uh, let's say the Fed controlled money system, which is the dollar, pounds, euros. Swiss franc and um, yen. Mm. They all totally make 85% of the total of the global economy in figures. Mm -hmm. And uh, the economy of the of the BRICS states makes that 11 to 15%. Let's say 11%. But Saudi Arabia is going to, if my information is correct, it looks like that Saudi Arabia will join the BRICS state in September. Mm. So so the commodities come together in order to establish um, an own currency wall against the West. Mm. And um, what is your opinion about this? Um, that's really interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't kind of um, looked at it in that light until now. So that's, thank you for that. That's a really interesting um, point. Yes, I mean, um, what I had been aware of, of course, is what's going on is this connection. Um, like, for example, we were talking about the Kirkuk uh, Banyas pipeline connecting to Iran. Of course, eventually that will connect in also, I presume, with the China Belt and Road Initiative and so on. Um, you have the history of the Five Seas Project, etc. 
So, you know, this, this, and, and of course, that's largely what Pan-Arabism was about, right? It was ring fencing um, Middle Eastern or West Asian um, commodities, right? And protecting them, uh, nationalizing them and protecting them from Western piracy. And of course, that's why the West did its utmost <laughs> to prevent anything like that happening. And of course, Gaddafi and Pan-Africanism and so on all of these movements were basically destroyed by the West because they could see the potential danger that, as you said, the commodities would be ring-fenced and suddenly they'd have to pay real money for it rather than just stealing it. Um, and so, yes, I, I think for sure, and of course, Russia and China have a vested interest in making this happen because ultimately Russia and China will um to a large degree have not control in the way the us has but th they will have um big interests in this happening because effectively you know w with their um investment in countries like syria and iraq and so on um the brokering of the peace deal between you know th they're building themselves up <clears throat> to be at the top of this commodity pyramid, basically. That's how I see it. Um, and so the West, as you said, will then become what? It then just becomes a banking sector. I mean, you know, it's, it's very hard to perceive. And also, I mean, I would have a question for you. How are these countries not seeing what is happening? <laughs> Which how country? are they not seeing? Well, any countries, yeah. your country, the EU... Um, this is very this is very easy because um, if you are going if you want to have a university degree you have to make, you have to run through a demoralization process and if you if you go through the demoralization process you have no chance to understand what is right and what, what is wrong mm -hmm. and um, and for example I like to also to compare it to Greece yeah. uh, uh, in 191974 I hope I'm correct <laughs> John. Um, the journalists in Greece, they were faster than the government and they <laughs> told the truth. Mm. And for this reason, the European Union said, oh, we can. This is not a very good uh, image. If the dictatorship <laughs> is in the European Union, you have to change. Mm. And now the Western media is completely under control of the government. Yeah. For example, mm. they, <laughs> the media tell us how how good heat pumps are yeah and uh, the co2 degrees by heat pumps until 2030 will be 1.6% yeah it's ridiculous um so the problem is that the governments with the media and with the school with the school system teaching system they made a complete brainwashing in our in our societies yeah, yeah? and um yeah, and the problem is that people are not aware of these systems. Let's say they are very self-centered. They got very self-centered and they don't care about it. Look, for example, um, UK de delivered uh, depleted uranium to mm -hmm. Ukraine. Yeah, the most people don't know what what does what what yeah. this is. Yeah, um, it is uh, it is a military strategy. Because mm -hmm. there, where, when you when the depleted uranium falls down to the ground, you cannot grow wheat anymore. 
Yeah. It's poisoned. So what have what can you do? What can you grow instead of wheat? Heroin, opium. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then they take and interesting is they took all the countries around Russia. They uh, in wars they used depleted uranium, so they increased the drug production, and then they made streets through Russia like silk streets, but only drug streets, and mm. and established markets in the cities of Russia, so that in the case of a war, the military has already allies in the foreign countries. Mm. This is the situation. This is the military strategy, and that the people don't get um, get something to eat. No one cares because the the field in Ukraine is completely lent to European companies, mm. and now it's yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and I mean the the radiological, and this is what people aren't, aren't really on understanding. You know, people tend to think, oh well, the UK is supplying depleted uranium to Ukraine. I mean, the UK and US have used depleted uranium, I think, in pretty much every single intervention from yes. Yugoslavia forwards, right? And yes. the radiological effects, as you said, in in the territory of those countries, is I mean, it, it lasts forever. Look at Iraq. Right. 2,000 tons. 500 to 2,000 tons yeah. in Iraq. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You know. and, and at the same time, this is also very interesting because you talked about wheat production in Turkey. Mm. Uh, I'm a little bit in the commodity business. And interesting is that 90% of the Russian wheat is reserved by the U.S., <laughs> already right yeah so uh so everything uh in the past russia could work directly with europe mm. and we and they delivered cheap products so that uh, europe can uh, increase the productivity and their and its economy now we have between russia and europe we have the us and they make all the profits mm. yeah this is yeah. Um, but and one question: Do you know whether in Syria they used depleted uranium? Yes, they did. Yep. Um, they used it. I think uh, they admitted they used it back in. I think it was 2015, um, and they claimed it was necessary. To, or no, it was actually maybe before. Because they claimed it was necessary to target an ISIS uh, convoy. Although why they couldn't have used normal bombs, I have no idea. But um, I have had reports from military, Syrian military, that they supplied um, DU-tipped uh, bullets and that they have used uh, DU in, in different sectors in Syria. So not only this one. This one is the only one that they've admitted to um, because there were so many witnesses to it. And of course, you know, there the risk is People will come and they'll take away um, the scrap metal from the destroyed convoys, and then that scrap metal gets taken into Iraq or into Turkey or wherever. And, and before you know it, it, it spreads, and kids yes. have been touching it and playing in it and so on. And another thing is, I mean, talking about wheat, I guess you know that um, uh, when was it? One year or two years ago, um, Samantha Power, who heads up, of course, USAID now. 
um, under Biden, tried to send in genetically modified uh, wheat seed into Hasaka. Luckily, the agricultural ministry there picked up on it um, and it wasn't distributed out to the farmers because had that actually been planted, it would have rendered virtually all of the Northeast uh, agriculturally redundant for, for decades. Yes. So, you know, they, they, this is what they do, as, as you pointed out. You know, they, they don't, they're not putting anything into these countries. They're basically <clears throat> not only plundering, but destroying the ability of those countries. Like I believe in Libya, they poured um, plutonium into the water sources, didn't they? Into the irrigation um, systems that Gaddafi had uh, established in, in Libya. Yeah, that's um, the interesting thing is, uh, in my opinion, now the first June, because um, there are two opinions right now, because on the one hand, Janet Yellen says that <laughs> there is a warning um, <laughs> that uh, there's a possible possible government default as the first June in dispute of the debt ceiling in the United States, because at the moment they have $31.4 trillion debts. Mm. And if the Congress does not agree to this, in that moment, um, they will, America will go bankrupt. Mm. And the question is, really, will it happen or not? Because there are two, uh, there are two possibilities. On the one hand, uh, they, if the if the Congress wouldn't do it, because then they would lose their influence on the on the world market, of course, I guess. Yeah. But on the mm -hmm. other hand, they would increase, let's say, the transformation within their country, like they want to have it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, this is for me a very interesting uh, date because. Uh, if the if if the Congress does not uh, accept or does not allow new debts in that moment, the world economy economy will crush, and then you have a, a situation where there's so much chaos that you have to that you can grow a new, and that a white knight can come <laughs> and can create a new city, for example, like 50 minute states within oh, until 2024. <laughs> Uh, right. Yeah. Mm. And I think this is a re with this potential danger, I think that all the commodity countries come together right now in order to um, create something uh, against this currency. Mm. But uh, this is, but many say they wouldn't do it because then they would lose their influence on, um, on the world world economy but uh, mm. what's your opinion <laughs> um i mean i know saudi i mean saudi arabia is is investing in the kind of 15 minute cities isn't it i mean really? yeah neom look up n-e-o-m oh god it's vast and, and uh, I mean, it's hideous. 
but Saudi Arabia has been in on this whole idea for quite a long time. So that's what kind of, um, I guess this part of me, huh? This is very interesting. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I, I can't remember the scale of it, but it's huge. And I, it, it's, it's destined, they're already building it, huh? Um, and it's destined to house millions, millions. I mean, okay. it's, it's the length of uh, one of the deserts. As I said, I can't remember all of the statistics on it, but look it up, N-E-O-M, um, and it's pretty terrifying. I mean, people will be living in, in these extraordinary environments where, you know, as, as you probably know with the 15-minute city idea is that people can be, that's where you will be locked down, right? Yep. Um, and the and the the governments or or whoever is controlling the governments can cut off your food supply. They can cut off your water supply. They can cut off pretty much anything. Without so, a digital passport, you cannot leave it. Very exactly. Simple. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and so then, Saudi Saudi is is actually well ahead on this. So that, that's where I would be. Saudi for me is is kind of um, I still see it as as a sort of threat actually. <laughs> I don't see it as, as completely divorced from, um, certainly not from the WEF or from the West. So I'm not quite sure what, what what's going to happen from that perspective. And I also, I mean, I haven't seen Russia and China coming up with any of these ideas yet. Um, and we talked about this last time, I think, you know, the, in fact, there has been um, a huge amount of investment in Russia into um, uh, accommodation for civilians in, in encouraging people to buy land, start businesses, the exact opposite to what's going on in the West, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, check that out in Saudi Arabia because that's pretty, pretty scary. <laughs> yeah, because in the, the, okay, but uh, I think that at the moment they are, they are joining the, let's say, the BRIC side. Mm. And the BRIC side is not, I have the impression that the BRIC side is not on the side of the World Economic Forum. I agree. But but I, I still think Saudi is very much going down that path of the WAF. Mm -hmm. So I'm not, I'm not quite sure how that kind of um, fits in. Yeah, it, it, let's say it this way. The fascism comes from the Western world and the Saudi Arabia and... and um, the yeah. fascism in in a specific country mm. or in the country you talk about is very very tough mm. yeah and uh, unfortunately they are also the one who made the foundations in uh, of of moshes in, in ex yugoslavia which mm. which makes the foundations for the western europe and uh, the moshes many moshes in western europe are funded by saudi arabia the most people don't understand know that. And this is a very, very tough, very tough topic. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was a real pleasure again. It was too short, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> Thank Thanks. you so much. No, you're welcome. And do check that out. N-E-O-M. Go and have a look at it. It's, it's, they've got a whole um, website and a kind of, you know, AI-generated uh, schematic of it. It's yeah. yeah, Hamburg shall be become the first 50-minute city as well in Germany. Mm. Well, Hamburg. I think Oxford's lined up in the UK. Oxford.
Yeah. Do you think that Oxford will um, will uh, will win, or let's say, do you think that Oxford Oxford will will Can take the chance in order to stop it? I really don't know. I, I honestly don't know. I'm I'm quite disappointed in the British reaction to all of this. They seem to be kind of capitulating to an awful lot of it. As I said, seeing people out on the streets celebrating the coronation, my heart sank. So, you know, yes, it's very possible. People bought into the COVID project, you know, in the 15 minutes. What are they going to create to make people, as you said, accept the 15-minute city as the only solution? That's the thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> the problem is, uh, I, I, I read a quote which said, never argue with idiots first they will bring you down to their level and then they will beat you with their experience <laughs> yeah <laughs> so <laughs> this is the problem we're facing <laughs> okay thank you so much i pass it no, all right thank you to everyone thanks for having me on it's lovely talking to you all and Thank you again, Vanessa. So there she is, the Uncompromised Integrity in Journalism. So make sure you follow her. And I have all the information in the post notes. Do subscribe, still support her. You know, everyone is just depending on the people's support. Okay. And we will put our information as well. Any more last uh, few statements for the audience, Vanessa, or you're done with your energy Thank you for your generous. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think, you know, for anyone trying to find their way through the maze of information is to find people you trust and you think that you can rely on to provide some kind of clarity. Um, and don't, whatever you do, read mainstream media. They lie for a living <laughs> and they do very little else. So stay away from them. Um, and either use your own rationale to break out of the gaslighting paradigm, or as I said, find someone that you trust um, or find a group of people not necessarily connected that you, you, you can trust to at least question what's going on. Thank you, everyone, and have a beautiful day, evening, week, months, and see you again next time. Please don't forget to like, subscribe, all our different channels. It will be in the post note. And, of course, the one and only Vanessa Billy. We'll have her every month if she, if she has the time for us, but she really needs to spread her wings more because she has a crucial role. We'll take her again in the, you know, whenever she says, I'm available. Thank you. <laughs> You're very welcome. And thank you all very much for all the different perspectives and, and information that I also learned tonight. So thank you. Our pleasure. Thank you. Take care. <laughs>